Do most music discussion podcasts leave you unsatisfied? Well, search a little left of the dial and find episode 114 of Love That Album waiting for you. Morris is joined once again by film and music writer Heather Drain, along with first-time co-host Randy Ojeda from the Cigar City Radio Podcast. The trio discussed the personalities and career of the replacements, with focus on their 1987 album, Pleased to Meet Me. This is the album that polarises fans. There are those who say that with Bob Stinson evicted from the band, they lost their heart. And it must have been hard for a band like The Replacements to get rid of a founding member who was usually drunker than the rest of them. On the other hand, there are those who say that the remaining trio created the perfect storm with this record combining the edge and punky aggression of their earlier records with great pop melodies, love songs, hero worship and a tale of tragedy. Long-time listeners to the show will know that Pleased to Meet Me was an inevitable choice for the podcast. Randy, Heather and Morris discuss whether they sit on the stink or all shook down side of the replacements divide. Eric Reanimator chimes in to talk about female rock trio from Minnesota, Zuzu's Petals, when no one's looking as the focus of his album I Love segment. If you're in love with this podcast, stick around and hear what the crew has to say. Can't hardly wait. kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? speaking here you're listening to episode 114 of love that album podcast so pleased to have your company thanks very much for downloading and this is an episode that in some ways i felt like i should have recorded a long time ago but i was waiting for these two people to be available all the way back from 2011 i've been waiting for them to clear up their schedules and now everyone it was available on this day so it's taken till episode 114 to get us to talk about the replacements more details on that in a couple of minutes but first of all i'm welcoming back for her second month in a row people are going to be talking heather drain courtesy of mondoheather.com welcome back to us heather wow hello 
hello. Thank you so much for having me back. The check was in the mail, so I had to have you for a second, month, <laughs> as you yourself indicated before we went on air. Thank you very, very much. And for the first time on the program, a man whose program I've been listening to and really, really enjoying, he runs a musician's agency. He has a podcast. He gets to interview all sorts of interesting and exciting people. Welcome to the show for the first time, Randy Ojeda. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm really excited to be on the show, but wait, what was this about a check? I didn't hear anything about a check. Storm, storm, storm. We don't talk about this check. <laughs> I just want to set things up for the listeners so they know who you are. Now, I discovered you from your podcast, Cigar City Podcast, but you also run like a musician's agency. You manage bands, and I just find that incredibly exciting. So I don't know which one to talk about first. Let's talk about the podcast first, because that's how I first discovered you. I thought, wow, yeah. this is a guy who's got the zombies. He's interviewing the zombies, one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah, we did, we did, interview, we, we did interview the zombies. We actually interviewed Tommy Simpson um, on episode 50 of the podcast, which was like a dream come true for me. But I guess the podcast, though, we, we have to really start with the management side of things. The company Cigar City Management is what started things. I was in law school and not really enjoying the, the track that I was on, not really enjoying like the whole being a lawyer thing and wanted to uh, find a way to get back into the music scene and into the music industry. And, you know, just the more I met with other managers and learned about what management is and studied and read the books, I was like, this is something I'd really like to do and started with one client three years ago. Now we're at 10 clients across the U.S. You know, we have bands in New York and in Chicago and in L.A. and Portland and all over the place. And it's what I do full time. I don't do any lawyering anymore, which is nice. I get to actually focus on music full time. And, and from that is where we birthed the podcast is uh, Cigar City Radio, which really started as a way to just tell, just help bands tell stories, you know, because we meet so many bands and we talk to so many bands and, you know, people that are touring through and just smaller and up and coming bands and like what it's like to get into a van and drive around with your friends and try to make it in a rock and roll band in 2018. So it just kind of grew from that idea of like, let's, let's help these bands tell some stories and let's talk about what they're doing and what they like and, you know, who they are outside of just being a musician. And we started with, you know, a couple episodes, recorded some bands that were touring through and then it just kind of grew and grew. And now it's at the point where, you know, we have somebody like the zombies coming to town and, you know, their publicists are reaching out to us to say, Hey, you know, can you interview the zombies? And of course I would absolutely love to interview the zombies. <laughs> so that's it. We're at, we're at a really cool spot where it's like, we get, to like pick and choose you know who we who we get to interview sometimes which is cool and being able to like talk to people that we really have always wanted to talk to as well as you know i always want to keep the focus on touring bands and independent bands and be able to put bands from our local area and artists that we know personally on the same level as the zombies or tommy stinson or we've had amy ray and you know a bunch of like really amazing artists and musicians so yeah, thanks for listening to that. I hope uh, anybody who's listening to this, if you want to check it out, I, that would be cool. I would love to have uh, Maurice on an episode sometime. A few weeks ago, I listened to your episode with John Hammond. You didn't see this, but I was bowing down, thinking, oh my goodness, someone who's got the great John Hammond on his podcast. I mean, what can I offer a podcast that gets John Hammond and G Love and they might be giants? And just sort of following on to something that you just mentioned that you like to just sort of have the musicians, both local musicians as well as the bigger names who come on the show and just talk casually about what it is that they do without it being the pressure to promote something. Or I was listening to your episode about a band that I knew nothing about, The Nude Party. 
And it was just like a, Love a, the new party. a bunch of a, you and the guys were just like a bunch of guys in a room just shooting the shit and just having a lot of fun and just talking about you know, not just about the music, but other things as well. And But it was still interesting to me as a listener and someone who didn't really know their music. And I think that you've really found a great format. It's very conversational. Yeah, well, I'm glad it's, it sounds that way, that it's just a couple guys sitting in a room because that's basically what it is. You know, we just uh, uh, we get together and, and sit in a room and, and talk and hang out and you know sometimes we're hanging out with uh, a couple kids like the nude party or you know a young band from north carolina you know and then sometimes we're sitting we're hanging out with guar and it's like a totally you know but it feels the same it doesn't matter whether we're talking with a big act or a small act occasionally you'll interview somebody that like kind of lives the cliche a little bit and might be a little too stuck up but for the most part the people that agree to come on the show are usually really nice and really friendly and you know by the end of it they're asking us for you know dinner recommendations and you know what they should do you know with with the, the time they have while they're in the city you know so it's a really cool thing to do and like i said it's, it's a obviously a pleasure to interview bands like like they might be giants and guar and artists that i've been listening to since i was a kid so the big question who would be your dream interview paul simon is, is my golden goose you know i guess the other paul paul westerberg but uh <laughs> definitely uh paul simon is my favorite songwriter i think in the list of albums that i thank you uh that i, that I really love that there are probably a couple paul simon records and then I don't even know what I would ask him you know how do you start with Paul Simon I mean there's so much to talk about and so much that you know I'd love to know and and I would just sit love to sit and listen to his stories I think one of the albums that you might have suggested was so beautiful or so what and I instantly regretted that I'd already done it like a few years ago because it's so recent it's not one that's in the general conversation people sort of tend to keep on thinking back Graceland and uh, still crazy after all these years but you know that album showed that in the 2000s he was still writing great material and was still relevant and such a beautiful record yeah and that's one of my favorite records to me personally just because i got to see him live on that tour um and i'm you know i'm going to the farewell tour he's doing now but i'm you know i'm getting the opportunity to like that was the first time i got the opportunity to see him was during the so beautiful or so what tour and there's just something about the way that band played and the way that concert came across live that i'll just never forget that experience so a lot of those songs are like really ingrained in my subconscious all right so if the listeners out there are thinking well this sounds like a mighty fine podcast right up my alley how can they find you cigar city radio is on you know all the major podcasts places you know the itunes and stitcher spotify we're on now like basically any of those if you search cigar city radio uh we usually come up you can also just go straight to cigarcityradio.com mm-hmm. and pick up the episodes from there too but whatever you use for your podcast whatever you're listening to this on i'm sure you can subscribe to us on it too i suppose at this time i should sort of mention what it is that we're here to do because we've gathered to talk about the replacements as i said at the beginning of the show and in specific we're here to talk about album number uh, five, six, released in 1987, pleased to meet me. This is sort of a divisive point for some people. I think there are some people out there who sort of say, yeah, this is where it all falls apart. And there, there are some people who say this is the band's masterpiece. I'm looking forward to seeing what the two of you have to say about this record. And we'll talk a bit about the background of the replacements without wanting to repeat too much. That's common knowledge out there. But just to get our thoughts out there for the record, that's the purpose of this show. A little bit later on in the program, Eric Reanimator will return for his album, I Love segment. I should probably point out at this time that this is going to be Eric's final album, I Love segment for a couple of months. I would normally let him reveal that information himself, but we've already gone and put out the compilation edition 
second episode for the month and Eric has already revealed that so no secrets this month he's going to be talking about the band Zuzu's Petals and their album When No One's Looking they're another band out of Minneapolis so I guess that's the connection between them and The Replacements so I'll talk to you at the end of the program as to who is going to fill Eric's very big shoes for uh, the next couple of months until he returns in October yeah so what we'll do now is we'll go to the contact details Joanne will tell you how you can write to us how you can join the Facebook groups and all that sort of thing and then we'll be back after this break you're listening to episode 114 of Love That Album with Morris over here Heather over there and Randy somewhere else over there we hope you're enjoying the show you can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. Hi, I'm John Waters. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Wings Hauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. Morris over here, Heather over there in Arkansas, and Randy over there in Florida, have I got that correct? Tampa, Florida, yes. There you go. The Sunshine State. I'm here in Victoria, the cold and miserable state. But anyway, we're not here to talk weather, we're not here to promote local tourist boards, we're here to talk about music, and in specific, (laughs) we're going to be talking about the Replacements album, Please to Meet Me. So I guess that the opening gambit that I really need to sort of go around the table with is your respective discoveries of the replacements. So, Heather, we'll start with you. When do you first recall listening to the replacements? My introductory song of the replacements was I'll Be You. Shock and feeling tall. 
which is not on this album. <laughs> and in fact, what's weird, because I had that as a cassette single, and for some reason that led me to buy, at the same time, a copy of this one, as well as Hootenanny. Right. Uh, which, for all of you Matt's fans out there, you understand the dichotomy here. <laughs> Of the band's discography. And I loved both of them. I listened to both of them pretty religiously in, I would say, about late 90s. The replacements didn't get a whole lot of airplay where I'm from. I didn't even hear I'll Be You until, I mean, after the band had broken up. But yeah, I loved both albums. This was like when you asked me to be on this one, I was kind of curious because of those two, I'll visit and revisit Hootenanny. And of course, that led me down, you know, the rabbit hole of Tim and Let It Be and Sorry Ma and Stink. I listened to all of those more that I revisit this one. So you gave me the opportunity to revisit this album. So I'll keep my opinions on it, though, till we get full on into the meat here. Yeah, keeping it <laughs> cards under your sleeve. Hmm, Absolutely. <laughs> my first discovery is so much lamer than Heather's. It's not nearly as cool. This is kind of revealing a little bit about myself that people might not know, but Please to Meet Me came out in 1987. I was not born in 1987. <laughs> so I hadn't been born yet. And I didn't discover the replacements until and I really like I'm a huge Matt's fan so nobody discredit me I've had Tommy Simpson on my podcast okay? <laughs> but I I didn't discover the replacements until the movie Can't Hardly Wait with Jennifer Love Hewitt and Seth Green you guys know what movie I'm talking about the teenage party movie yeah I was too old to be watching <laughs> teenage movies so uh, no nah. I, I was probably too, actually too maybe a little too young to be watching teenage movies but <laughs> I was watching Can't Hardly Wait and the song can't hardly wait is the closing credit of that film. You know, a light went off. What am I listening to? And from there, I got Please to Meet Me and, you know, listen to that record. And then the replacements obsession sort of grew and grew from there. But I'm sorry to say, I wish I could have gone to the record store and picked up Hoot and Annie and that had been my first experience. But no, it, it was because of a Jennifer Love Hewitt movie. There's this whole dichotomy about the replacements. I mean, we'll get into this like in a few minutes, no doubt. But the band that released Stink is not the same band that released Don't Tell a Soul. And yet they are the same band so right well sort of <laughs> well uh, that may be a debate we'll get into later sure I uh, sure I mean, <laughs> but you know the fact that it can appeal to people who like both albums or, or different people yeah. who might like both i think that's fantastic i mean I, I think it'd be in a way cliche to say oh yeah man i was right from the get-go i first heard stink i like the fact that you know your connection came from somewhere later on from a song like can hardly wait but we will get into that like heather said the replacements were never a band that got radio play you know or i mean i guess they did but in smaller like college radio stations they never had a big commercial hit you know they never had songs that the billboard top of the charts or anything so it's interesting that this band has continued to sort of every generation has found the replacements in some way it later on it's not like it's the the kind of band that the, the cult following had to grow 
over time. And as I sort of pointed out on the Love That Album Facebook page just in the last 24 hours, I've gone and posted a couple of songs by other artists that had written songs in dedication to The Replacements. And I think Eric Reanimator went and put an additional one. So they're the sort of band which the myth grows, the legend grows and all those other cliches because other musicians <laughs> want to pay homage to them and it, I think that, you know, the fact that they didn't get gazillions of people buying their records back in the day, maybe it hasn't hurt them because you know people, as you say, will discover them their own way and the music will speak to them and will mean something to them. And that's really what I want to get out of this conversation, you know, what their music over the years has meant to both of you. Here you go. You say that your excuse is lame, Randy, but look, I lived through their era and yet I didn't discover them until well after they'd broken up. My first recollection of hearing them, and I can't pinpoint what year it was, but it was sometime in the 90s where a fellow who I knew who worked for a CD store here in Melbourne, he went and said to me, listen, I think you need to hear this based on the other things that you listen to. And he gave me his copy of a bootleg called Shit, Shower and Shave. And the songs on that is like taken from three different shows, but all, I think, off a soundboard. So the sound quality was excellent. And the <laughs> tours, or the shows were from 1989, which I believe was when the replacements were supporting Tom Petty on the Full Moon Fever Tour. And like obviously, you know, the music was doing something for me. I thought, wow, you know, this is really great. This is really aggressive stuff, but still very, very melodic. But this was like well past what most people consider with the heyday with Bob Stinson. This is during the Slim Dunlap years. And yet for me, you know, first hearing them for the first time, I thought, wow, this is really, really exciting. And the humor shone through. And after like the opening song on the CD, you hear Paul Westerberg say oh, The Rolling Stones are playing in Philadelphia tonight, but uh, we're better, so fuck them thought, right, this is the band for me, you know, this is, the, I, I just thought, wow, you know, who else is going to say that? And I, I just really loved how the music was fierce and melodic and Westerberg's attitude was, he didn't owe anything to anyone. And I don't know, maybe if I've made a bad replacements joke there. The other thing is I love, and Heather, you'd appreciate this, they were deprecating and when he went and said that comment about the Rolling Stones, it's hardly like a Paul Stanley bit of banter between <laughs> songs, you know, I know you're a big kiss. So, How dare you, sir? <laughs> you know, Paul, West, Paul Westerberg was never going to say, I want to know how many people out there like to party. I got a feel we're going to have ourselves a real good time tonight. But they did cover Kiss. They did. That's, that's true. <laughs> he was never going to use the Paul Stanley banter. <laughs> if he had, I might have thought, oh, I don't know. I might just, should I go any further with this? <laughs> The next exposure that I had to them was still actually not really replacements. It was through Paul Westerberg's excellent double album, Mono and Stereo. And it was a really great set of tunes that was, as I found out later, you know, less on the Matt's Piss and Vinegar. But I really, really loved the songs that were on there. And there was something of the rock beast, the something of the rock animal. And yet there was also a lot of the heart on the sleeve sort of thing that Paul Westerberg had come to fall into. So the first real replacements album that I got, and once again, it was not like a committed studio album. It was their anthology called All for Nothing, Nothing for All. I went into a Borders store here, which, you know, became the new big thing in the mid nineties. We, you know, imported that from the States, having the Borders shops. I really loved that album, but as I then went on, 
on after that to get into the the Matt's albums proper. Listening to that album nowadays, I'm feeling that I wouldn't, I can't say it's a dishonest album, but it's really only presenting one side of the Matt's. It's only presenting the Sire Records years. And when you go from that album and then you go listen to Stink or Sorry Ma, I forgot to take out the trash, you're thinking, whoa, this is two different bands. Not what I'm used to. It's still great, but you're not going to get the side of the band that plays Fuck School. I still fell in love with them. Well, I mean, I was already in love with them through that bootleg I mentioned, but it was a very, very different side to the band. I want to tell you a little bit about another fellow who reached out to me. He's a you know, fellow podcaster, Tom Quee, who uh, I've had on the show a couple of times before. He sent me a note saying that his introduction to The Replacements, and, and you've got to realize, you know, Tom's younger than all of us. But he'd heard Let It Be at the age of 17. And I sort of became very, very envious, sort of thinking I wish that they'd been around when I was 17 to hear them. But he was taking solace uh, just like a few days ago in England's loss in the World Cup to Croatia by playing Let It Be really, really loud. told me that he discovered the album at a time when he was going through full-on teenage angst and you know he was unsure about his place in the world and all those other sort of teenage cliches sort of things and his note to me got me to sort of thinking about the nature of how we discover music in general and how we listen like for me the Matt's music was just more about really digging what they were doing as an observer as someone who wasn't necessarily reaching out to them as thinking yeah identify with that I was just someone who loved the music I loved the energy of the music and I was loving listening to the stories that Paul Westerberg was conveying you know be it something aggressive or being it something like can't hardly wait or unsatisfied. I think when I discovered them, which I kind of love that all three of us apparently didn't get into the Mads until after they were like no longer a unit in any Until after they broke up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's pretty um, hilarious and pretty typical of, of the Mads, of course. <laughs> I would say, I think actually Hootenanny probably kind of uh, emotionally connected with me more than Pleased to Meet Me, though. I, I mean, I loved both of them. And I mean, the replacements, whether it's sort of the, cl- you know, the classic Bob Stinson era or post Bob, where it kind of, in my opinion, kind of evolved more to being more with Paul being kind of more Paul Westerberg, which Paul Westerberg is an amazing songwriter and singer. And I mean, even if somebody's not a fan of his solo stuff or even of the replacements, which I don't know what's wrong with y'all, but <laughs> like if you, <laughs> but you cannot deny the man's mind and talent, like he's amazing. But I think, yeah, just thinking about my state of mind at that time, I think kind of the, just the more sort of rough hewn, but also like, you know, the thing I love is even like with the early stuff, like within your reach, 
is on, off of Hootenanny. And that's a beautiful, beautiful song just about longing. You know, and that's still pretty early. I mean, this is, you know, that's right after the whole stink and <laughs> sorry ma era. And already, you know, that band was showing like some emotional depth. That's the thing I love about the replacements is they did so many different things. There's kind of like something for everybody. If you want like a beautiful song about love, a ballad, you got it. If you want some just awesome, the quote, the dead boys, young, loud and snotty mm. uh, energy. You got that, too. It's so good. Those first several replacements albums, just if you maybe be like, what's your favorite? I can't. They're all just kind of as a blob. <laughs> kind of my favorite. Uh, that was a bit of a chewy answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that's, no, that's fine. That's a great answer. Randy, did you find that there was a time where you were playing a particular song or a particular record over and over and over again because you thought, yes, Westerberg, he gets me. I feel like everybody goes through that with Paul Westerberg stuff at some point in their lives. I mean, I was 16 years old listening to 16 Blue, you know, so I was right there with him. And that, to me, that's what really good music is all about. And that's what like rock and roll is about. That's why I think I love The Replacement, because to me, their first few albums is what rock music should sound like, you know, and it's got, and like you said, it's got the angst, it's snotty, but, you know, there's also like really heartfelt songs and really amazingly well-written songs. Paul Westerberg Westerberg was a, a fantastic lyricist. I'm amazed there hasn't been some sort of a replacements poetry book or something that they've tried to make and, and release. We should get on that. I think part of what also makes the sound of the band work, I mean, obviously we're talking about great music and you've mentioned there the lyrics, Randy, but I think that part of what has always rung true is Westerberg's voice. There's something so honest. You listen to him singing, I'm unsatisfied, and you believe it. If he'd had yeah. a highly trained voice or he'd had a mannered voice of some sort, I might think, yeah, you're putting this on. Yeah, it's a great song, but it's a performance to it. When he sings the songs that he does, I believe everything that he sings. Bob Mayer, in his biography on The Replacements, Trouble Boys, has said that a lot of what the band were was in relation to their trouble background, their growing up, and they didn't have happy lives growing up. And I don't know, I don't want to sort of go into the cliche that saying that this band was their life raft. That tends to be the cliche that you get in Hollywood biopics about bands. And yet, life growing up probably did dictate all the things that they did, how Westerberg sang. It's one thing to sing with passion, but you can sing with passion and be mannered. But there's just something about his voice that you feel you're howling from a place that's true and honest and, you know, it's not for you to be singing made-up lyric. When he's singing a love song, he really means it. When he's singing something aggressive, he really means it. And that's why, I guess, it was inevitable that when the band moved from those early albums, those early teen angst-sounding albums, to songs of more, I don't know if you want to say, young adult concerns, it was some level of honesty. If they're sort of going seven albums down the track, if All Shook Down was just a rehash of the sort of stuff that they were doing on Stink, then you think, well, come on, guys, really, you got these same concerns? I think with The Replacement, it's not like they sold out the way, like, you know, Metallica made the Black Album or something, and, you know, people felt like that was them truly trying to find some kind of radio hit, but I feel like you said Westerberg's always been an honest songwriter. You know, you can't sing about the same stuff you were singing 
thinking about, you know, in, you know, when you were 15 or 16 and then saying about it still when you've had success and you've toured the world and life's a little bit different for you. There's, there's going to be different things to sing about and different concerns. I definitely feel like with the replacements, it was like a gradual change. You can see the roots of things start to take place in Let It Be and in Tim, especially. You could start to hear that the more friendly side of the replacements come out for lack of a better word the radio friendly sound i guess more of the power pop and less of the punk you know is, is what started to happen and by please to meet me that was when things actually i feel like that was the perfect storm of you know it still has a little bit of that punk edge but it's mostly just great songs that's one of the reasons i'm really excited about being on this episode of talking with you guys i'm sort of the slight dissenter where i think please to meet me is a really good album i think i feel like i kind of love the bob stinson era a lot more <laughs> sure. like, to me it's almost sort of like with some huge roxy music fan i love roxy music but i always kind of felt like after when they reformed and did like manifesto to avalon it was really more of brian ferry than roxy to me it kind of stopped being a pure roxy music and that's not a slight at all there's some absolutely amazing stuff and the same thing with the replacement having paul westerberg come more and more to the front center is never a bad thing it's paul westerberg just like it's Brian Ferry. But I do think, you know, that album, it, this one did seem to kind of achieve of getting this band at least more critical love from what I could tell reading, just kind of researching a little bit over the past few days. And and yeah, I mean, Can't Hardly Wait inspired a teen movie. Like that's, that puts it right next to something like 16 Candles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's a cool coup. There's no wrong way to get into great music for the record. So right. I think it's awesome. That movie, I remember it being okay, but heck, Randy if it got you into the replacements, then it's a great it movie. Something as far as right. I'm, yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't hate it. You know, I have to say, though, that nobody's saying that any of the replacements music is bad, I don't think. You know, whatever era of the replacements you love more than another era, I'm totally with you. It's, it's all great stuff, but it's just cool to see the band's progression over time and see how they change. Even as far back as Hootenanny, you know, you have songs like Color Me Impressed. kind of setting the blueprint for what they're going to be doing in a few years. And sure. Sort of often wrestled with the, this term progression because, I mean, I guess maybe you could say that, yeah, they moved from the punk of the early years to the power pop of the later years as Bob Stinson was out of the band and they went more the way that Paul and Tommy had their vision. But, Heather, when we discussed the tubes last month on the show, I think I brought up the notion that as they went from, say, the first album, the prog and the sexual shenanigans and the progressive theater rock type thing of the first couple of albums to the pop of the, of the David Foster years. Was that so much progression as just, no, well, now we want to explore this territory. We've done that. We don't want to do the same thing twice. So is where the band went more about progression or just about things that Paul Westerberg said, I don't want to do that anymore. I'd rather do this. Or maybe I'm playing semantics. I don't know. No, no. I think that's an interesting point. And honestly, I think it's a bit of both because I remember one time talking with my husband because he's 
also a big Replacements fan. And he was telling me how a roommate of his years ago, he thought the band sold out when they did Let It Be. <laughs> mm. Like, he loves Stink and Sorry Ma, and he liked Hoot Nanny. But the whole point was like, well, Tommy's not going to be 14 forever. You know, mm-hmm. it's like people grow up. I mean, these guys started so young. If they didn't progress, that would be a problem, I would think. I mean, like, that's because Randy, you mentioned Metallica. I had a lot of friends who were metalheads that, you know, they were okay with the Black Album, but it's like when they cut their hair and did Load and Reload, and they're like, oh, they sold out. And it's like, they can't make Ride the Lightning. They're not in their early 20s, hungry and drunk and poor, you know? <laughs> like, your, your yeah. music, I mean, you guys are musicians, I don't have to tell you this. You know, as an artist, the work should change as you get older because you should be changing and you should be growing. And I think the replacements are a, a perfect example of that. You know, even with the Bob era, there's a growing sensibility that the whole, you know, the band as a whole had influences that range from, you know, we talk about Kiss, which, by the way, I love Paul's vocal on Black Diamond. because he sounds so desperate and at the end of the road, which is so different. And yes, I love Kiss. And I love Peter Chris's vocal on the original. Peter had such a great voice for those hard rock songs. But, you know, with Kiss, it's almost more like defiant. Like, you know, I'm out on the streets for a living. I've got this. I'm going to kick ass. Where Paul just sounds like he's at the end of the rope, which is such a cool take. Like, such a cool take yeah. on it. But these guys also obviously huge big star fans, which is all over this album from song Alex Chilton to the fact that Jim Dickinson produced it, who produced big stars, I believe, her third album. That's right, yeah. And those are two great bands to be influenced by. I love both. But yeah, I mean, progression, good. Even if you, as a fan, and I mean, obviously Matt's fans, everybody's going to, some are going to love early era more than the latter, and vice versa. I'm sure there's a lot of people that bought Don't Tell a Soul. And fell in love with it, and then maybe on a lark got sorry, Mon. We're probably like, what the, what, what, what is this? Like, what? but that's the cool thing about you know, I love any band that can kind of give me a lot to chew on with their whole discography you know that's a gift even if i don't love all of it as you said randy yeah these guys never sold out well, they just did what came naturally to piggyback on your point too like they did start so young and and i think honestly like they the songs were great and the energy was great but they were still learning their instruments like they weren't really very good when they first started because how can you be when you're that young they just got better at being musicians and at writing songs and you know they started having the opportunity to work with bigger producers and and work at better studios and that just naturally makes for a cleaner sound and an easier to listen record you know as opposed to the early stuff that some of it sounds like it was recorded like in a trash can that's awesome but it's (laughs) you can't do that forever i'm glad that you brought up the whole notion of the musicianship there randy because part of the replacements myth and law i remember thinking two things very vividly first that they were the worst band i'd ever seen 
and second, that they were the best band I'd ever seen. That's a quote from that documentary that came out about the replacements yeah. a few years ago. But a band where you had Bob Stinson, who worshipped prog and thought Steve Howe was God's gift to guitar players. You had Tommy learn his bass in really, really quick time and is a world-class bass player. And once uh, Bob Stinson was out of the band and Paul Westerberg had to take over lead guitar duties, I think one of the things about Please to Meet Me is it shows that he's a fantastic guitar player, really playing some very fluid lead lines as well as his usual rhythm stuff. And Chris Mars was a really, really tight and solid drummer. And then yet, just imagine giving that argument to someone and then playing the opening cut to Hootenanny, the title track, and say, yeah, this band, they're the most cracking musicians. Hootenanny and E. get to listen to Hootenanny and uh, you say, what the hell is this? But it just goes to show they were a band with a sense of humour and they weren't afraid to just fuck around a little bit, have a little bit of fun and on a given night, well, if they played lousy, that's just who they were. They got drunk and they played around and they didn't sort of think, well, we have to be absolutely completely tight for the audience. It's the replacements experience. And I love the fact on that Hootenanny album, you go from that title track at the beginning where they're mucking around and then they go, straight into Runner. Which is as loud and snotty and tight and shows up their musicianship to its full capacity. What a really great punk band they were at that time. But you know, later on they went on to do uh, other things and showed other sides to their musicianship. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, still, uh, I was lucky enough to see the replacements when they reunited a few years ago. Saw them at Riot Fest in Chicago. Mm. Even then, they were still making mistakes. You know, so it's like they, <laughs> as much as they grew, they still like have that. You know, that's just who they are. This is just this is just their vibe. That was a very amazing experience to actually see them live. I'm you know, it, obviously I was too young to have seen them the first time around, so. I'm extremely jealous. I had to make do with listening to bootlegs from that tour. I was, so, I was so envious of anyone who had the opportunity. Heather, did you get a chance to see them? No, uh, great bands rarely come to these, <laughs> to my neck of the woods, unless uh, they're on the way up or yeah. down. <laughs> I was living in Chicago at the time when I found out that they were coming to Chicago. I was like, I have to see that show. And the, the day of the show was a big festival, Riot Fest, and it had rained, like, all day that day and it was like that cold Chicago rain like even though it was September it was still like pretty cold at least for a Florida boy like me and my wife who was my girlfriend at the time she came with me to the show because she wanted to see the replacements too of course and she actually had the, the flu that day and on top of that it was this heavy cold Chicago rain but I guess that's when I knew that you know, this she had to become my wife because she stuck it out <laughs> You know, we weren't going to miss the replacements just because of uh, some cold rain and, and, and the sickness, you know. I'm so glad we did. I'm so glad we stuck it out because that may never get an opportunity to see those guys play again. We haven't even had Paul Westerberg come out here on a solo tour, just him and a guitar. That, Randy, use your management connections. Get a note to him and tell him to get his ass down here. We'd love to see him. I wish I could. I wish I, I wish I had those kinds of Paul Westerberg connections. you got Tommy Stinson on your show. Come on, surely you'd have, have that connection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paul's more 
more elusive though. I mean, he doesn't do a lot of interviews and he doesn't, he's not, he's not as active. I feel like as Tommy Stinson, even though he's released more records, I feel like post replacement than Tommy Stinson did, but I feel like he's been a little more reclusive as he's gotten older. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I guess I don't know him personally, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. About 5.30, old Dan comes around Thought we'll pack his coat, said the night is short Reached in his pocket and he flashed a quart One of you mentioned before Jim Dickinson behind the production panel on this and this has forever been like a really interesting choice. I remember reading in the biography Trouble Boys it said that the band, I don't know if you you could use the word interview but it sounds more like they tortured a number of contenders for uh, the producer's role on the album. They had Scott Litt who went on to produce R.E.M. Mike Chapman who produced Get the Knack amongst many others and I'll stand here and say it loud and proud I adore the Knack and Get the Neck is one of my favourite albums. Jack Douglas, Jimmy Miller of Rolling Stones production fame, and they basically tortured them and scared them off. No one wanted to do it. But I think that it was Jim Dickinson with his, yeah, we'll do whatever you want. I don't care. Attitude, they thought, right, okay, you're the one for us. So he ended up being producer on this album. So it's probably a good time as any to sort of talk about the sound of the album and not just about how whether he got the best out of them as musicians because I think, you know, obviously I think they're on fire on a lot of the cuts on this album but I sort of was expecting, just like going back and listening to it with the ears of what I would expect out of a Jim Dickinson recording I don't think it sounds to me like what I would expect out of something that he'd produced. This still sounds like very much an album of the 80s, and, well, okay, it's an 80s album. didn't sound to me like the sort of album that Dickinson would have thought, no, fuck that, I want that classic sound. And I'm just sort of going to make reference to an album that he recorded a couple of years later, my favourite Australian band and one of my favourite bands, period, is Weddings, Parties, Anything. And they went off to Memphis to record with Jim Dickinson producing their third album called The Big Don't Argue. And that is one of the most vital, incredible, live-sounding albums I've ever heard. for me in terms of what Dickinson could achieve. And yes, I know, you know, this is a guy who went and produced Big Star and he produced other great albums for Ry Cooder and Aretha Franklin and the Rolling Stones and the like. And they're all fantastic. But this Weddings Party's Anything album, the sound, I'm not going to go comparing songs or music, and the, but the, the sound quality on that is just magnificent. And Please to Meet Me still sounds very much like an 80s produced album. It still sounds of its period. Am I being unfair? 
to be honest, I'm not a fan of the production. <laughs> I hate saying that because, like, looking up Jim Dickinson, like, he did a lot of great rockabilly, too. He's actually from my home state. He is an Arkansan. At least he was. He's no longer with us. He recorded with Sun Records in Memphis. Dude has done some amazing, amazing stuff. Worked with the Flaming Groovies, which is one of my favorite power pop bands. I have to totally agree with you, though, Morris, that the production, I don't think the production's terrible, but there's some songs where it sounds fine, sounds totally fine, and there's some, like, revisiting Can't Hardly Wait, which I still love that song as a whole. I hate the sax. I hate the saxes on it. It sounds too shiny. Like a good horn section, at least for me, should have like texture. It should have some balls to it. And <laughs> like it's ballless. You know, I just I, I hate it because otherwise it's a near perfect song. I love that song. Yeah, it's a little bit of its time and not in the best way. I'm, I'm not a fan of a lot of production, certainly anywhere between mid to late 80s and onward for mainstream albums, which this was at this point. And there's nothing I'm not I'm not a snob. There's a lot. I mean, I love Kiss. Obviously. Obviously, I'm fine with the mainstream. It's just a little, it's a little too shiny because to me, the mats for me personally are kind of the best when they're still allowed to be a little rough because like the roughness is kind of what makes even the stuff that is a little more polished. It gives it some bite. It gives it some heart too. You know, it gives it its pulse. I don't know. I love the horns and can't hardly wait. I love the saxophone and, and I don't know and nightclub jitters. I love that stuff. I like the kind of um, almost cheesiness of it at times. Like you said, it's uh, it is very much an 80s record, you know. So there's no hiding from that. I think you can put it on next to other records from the period and it, it'll, it'll fit right in. I love some of the production touches and some of the extra things that they didn't didn't really have to do, but they did. And to me, it's just, it's like them uh, just trying new things. You know, there's a lot of, there's, there's like sound effects, you know, and then nightclub jitters and stuff like that. And the, the backing vocals and I don't know, or, you know, it's just, it's kind of, it's almost a little silly. Like you said, like they, in their earlier days, they were kind of a sillier band and they didn't really take themselves too seriously. And I think, at times with the production they were able to do some things that were a little more fun for them when the songs were might have been a little more serious or more mature I guess I'm probably going to side with you on this one Randy that I do like the horns on Can Hardly Wait it's not like the syrupy strings that Paul McCartney always claimed he hated on the long and winding road there is something soulful about them I mean according to Bob Nair's biography on the band he reckons that Paul couldn't be a he actually thought that having the horns on that song was going to be a bit of a sellout. So as soon as the band left Memphis, that's when Dickinson went and put the horn section on the song. I mean, fully with Westerberg's knowledge, he wasn't sort of like doing something behind his back. But Paul basically said, look, OK, you do what you want with that. I can't be there for it, though. But I, I do think it is yeah. a nice touch and it does lend something to the song that I think it, it works with the lyric and the melody and the sentiment of the song. I want to come back to that a little bit later on when I want to sort of put it in context with the love song progression. But at this stage, we should probably sort of like talk a bit more about the songs on the album itself. Give me the honest, big impression. 
I love the fact that just sort of like listening to the album again, you know, quite a few times in preparation for the show, it struck me that there's a couple of different themes that run through the album. And one of those themes is like, you know, the opening trilogy of songs, which is about the music industry and about the Matt's place in it. The opening cut on the album, IOU, that was you know, allegedly about a time where Iggy Pop had gone and signed his autograph for Paul Westerberg and saying, I owe you nothing. And I love the nature of this song in that it's like the old guard sort of teaching something to the new guard. You think you're owed something by the general public, you're owed something by the industry trust me i'm losing all i own on that dotted line it's bitter and it's cynical in that regard it's not a long way from the attitude of the early matt's albums it's just maybe got you know a little bit of a jim dickinson production polish on it but this is a song that in some ways could have fitted in on an earlier album but that's one of those opening three cuts in iou alex chilton and i don't know as an opening gambit in the music industry i guess i never really looked at it like that you know i know that the iggy pop story about iou and obviously alex chilton is kind of a, a weird almost celebration of the music industry and loving music but also has kind of a cynical bias to it in a way. It's kind of like Alex Chilton to me is like like Spirit of Radio by Rush or something where it's a song that's like about music and like kind of a nostalgia for how music used to be when you were young. Right. You know, as opposed to whatever it is today whenever, you know, when, when the person's writing it. And that's to me why I've, I've always loved that song even though it's kind of the cliche replacement hit amongst, you know, amongst people. It still, to me, just resonates in a way because I, I can't travel anywhere without my music and the, the music that I love and the, the songs that I love that, you know, I feel like I need those songs to live and survive. And that's almost like what Paul Westerberg is saying and, and Alex Chilton is this music that he loves is what's gotten him through everything. And it's weird that the replacements end up taking that role for people the same way Big Star did for them. I think it's a fascinating thing, though, that the replacements went and recorded this band, which had often been so self-deprecating, went and recorded a song in homage to a band that went the opposite route. They decided right from the beginning they're going to call themselves Big Star, and yeah, I know it's named after a supermarket. I just love the fact that you know, there was this self-deprecating band that went that only had modest success, paying homage to a band that obviously had high hopes and high aspirations to start off with, but never went anywhere. And maybe it was in some small way uh, Paul Westerberg's way of saying, well, you know, pay some attention to these guys in an alternative universe. They'd be 
be children by the millions screaming for Alex Chilton. I just love that line. But for me, the, the sentiment, why I fell in love with that song is the exuberance and the positive sentiment. I'm in love with that song. And just like there's a little personal thing. Before I started doing the podcast, I, like a lot of other people, started writing this out as a blog. And for some reason, I, I, I wanted to call it I'm in love with that song because I thought that's the positive spin I wanted to place on my love of music. I wasn't ever going to write things about this song sucks or this album is rubbish. I only wanted to write about stuff that I loved. And I don't remember what the reason was. For some reason, it wouldn't allow me to register I'm in love with that song.blogspot.com. So I ended up with the lame title of Love That Album. But my inspiration for this in some way is the song Alex Chilton. I just love the exuberance and I love the fact that it's positive, but without it being sycophantic or obsequious, it's we've discussed earlier on that Westerbeck does everything with some level of honesty and when he sings about Alex Chilton or as you suggest Randy the music that, that's in his life that's important to him you believe him that is really quite different from the opening IOU and the next song on the album I Don't Know which as the Mets sort of find right well we're on a big record label now what's the next thing that we do well, I don't know It's funny, and yet I imagine it came from a place where they felt genuinely befuddled by all that was going on around them. Yeah, I totally agree with that, especially for I Don't Know. And seeing and working with a lot of bands in my career, I've, I've noticed that I Don't Know is a very common thing for bands to express. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, it's a very unique experience to be in a band and be in a band that does fairly well and have people actually listen to your record. So, yeah, what, what do you do from there? I, I don't know. You know, I don't kind of know either. <laughs> Have you ever found that you've had bands call you up in the middle of the night and say, Randy, we're drunk as skunks, we don't know where we are, where's the hotel, we're locked out of the tour bus, what do we do? Luckily, most of them have tour managers, so I don't have to worry about that <laughs> when they're on the road. There's definitely a big part of being a manager is the actual relationship with the artist. There are a lot of late night calls about you know whatever sort of internal crisis they might be having or you know writer's block or just whatever's going on I, there's definitely a part a little bit of therapy in there with uh, with management where you're you really got to be there for somebody luckily nobody's ever been like totally lost or called me from prison or something so uh, <laughs> that's that's a good thing nobody's been locked up on my watch but i'm knocking on wood now because now I'm, I'm nervous just thinking about that <laughs> You can put that on your website as a sales point. No one's ever been locked up on my watch. <laughs> That's true. Heather, any thoughts about these early songs? There are actually three of my favorites on this album. And for the record, I'm fine with the horns on I Don't Know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's actually my number one favorite off this album. It's just, it, it just, it kicks ass. It's cynical. It's a little nasty. Got good crunch to it. I love it. I think IOU is also an incredibly strong song. I think it's a great opening track. It's got a lot of good, what I uh, call like thrust and shake to it. Literally just basically saying, yeah, we have it sold out. You know, and I just right. love Paul saying, you're all wrong and I'm right. It's just classic. <laughs> it's like classic Westerberg, you know, and Alex Chilton 
And I love the song, though. I think Alex was a little more maybe befuddled. I actually found a quote from an interview he did in 87 with Buzz Magazine where he had replied, well, I didn't feel any way about it. I mean, I'm so used to having these kind of fawning, imbecilic fans. To have it take on some coherence is refreshing. (laughs) And I'm just, I'm laughing because I love Alex Chilton and the song and the man. Alex Chilton was also a great producer. He worked at the Cramps, which are one of my favorite bands ever. And and it's fun. I'm also, for any of you rock band, I don't know if anybody's a gamer, like video gamer out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my parents got rock bands and like complete with a drum set. And Alex Chilton is so much fun to drum to. The drumsticks, I threw them across the room accidentally. Like, I'm not a good drummer. I'm not a good musician like you guys, okay? Nobody needs me. (laughs) I am a danger to myself and others, I think, with drumsticks. (laughs) But it's a lot of fun. I love these first three tracks. Uh, These three and The Ledge are my absolute... And I mean, there are other songs I love on the album, but like those four are like, oh, those, those are my tops. Talk a little bit about The Ledge because it seems like you know, with its place on the album after sort of opening up with songs that were self-reflective or the band stating their place in the industry or their thoughts about it, be it cynical or reverential. And we get to that song, The Ledge, and it's Westerberg in storytelling mode, first person. And this is a really, really scary song. There's a incredible sadness and darkness to it. Not to sound like I'm about to start busting out the black paper with the black ink to write very sad poetry on, but <laughs> <laughs> this band's, and I, I kind of touched this a little bit talking about Paul's vocal earlier, but this song really is just that feeling of just somebody who's truly, they're at the end of the line, and it really can captures that feeling. The fact that it was a single, I find very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, MTV had to ban the video, I think, right? Because it was uh, like so explicitly about suicide. There was a music video for it, though. Yeah, which is funny because the music video is literally just the band just kind of doing nothing and just looking very poor. It's so smart ass. It's amazing that it was a single though, right? Oh my god. And I love it when things like that happen. It's like this was a single? I mean I love it, but it's like I I understand why it wasn't in the top ten, you know, most people don't probably want to listen to songs about suicide. Yeah, but Suzanne <laughs> Vega had gone and had a big hit with a song about domestic abuse in Luca. So you know the general public will sometimes go for a song about difficult subject matter as long as they're not really focusing terribly much on what the lyrics are about as long as there's a pretty melody. Yeah. Now, Luca, there was no mistaking. The, the lyrics were so out there. I think you could sort of get away with listening to the ledge and maybe not necessarily focusing on what the lyrics were about if you were listening on the radio or you were listening in a club. Whereas Luca, there's no mistaking what that song is about. It, she sings it so, I'm trying to think of the word, it, it's uh, eloquently. I don't know, maybe that's not the expression either. But point is that the, the public, I think, under the right circumstances, will support a song with a difficult lyric. Sometimes, I think, especially 
especially just knowing how top 10 radio was in, in America in the 80s and probably even more so now. It's more of a fluke, though. I mean, also, Luke almost has more of a sing song. Like, if you're not listening to the lyrics, it's just kind of like a nice folk song almost. And I don't mean that like in a bad way. I mean, Suzanne Vega's great. And yeah, it's a really powerful, heavy song about child abuse. Yes. But whereas the, the ledge sonically sounds like the ledge like everything about that song is just end of the line i just i don't know i think it's great also i just love the fact that the replacements with their music videos actually with i'll be you they got ambitious but like with the ledge and bastards of the young both those videos are done the same style and they're like they're give a shitter (laughs) it's totally (laughs) isn't bastards of young the one with the stereo speaker yeah I think yeah, so. Yeah. I think it's that one. It's easy for like to get them too confused because they're very, they're so similar visually. What a great kind of punk rock thing of just being like, we are, yeah, we'll do this music video against our will, but you know, we're just gonna like smoke and you know, kind of scratch our hair and look hungover. Right. How great is the guitar solo on the ledge? By the way, it's probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Paul Westerberg solo. Is that uh, it just go? It just fits so well with the story and the theme of the song. Like it, to to express emotion like that through a guitar solo is like one of my favorite moments on the whole record. That's the thing I love about this. It's him playing what's appropriate for the song. It does convey the mood so well. It's gut churning rather than him trying to sort of show off as here are my chops. That's not him and he's serving the song which is really my big ethos about music always serve the song don't play what you can play what the song demands you're right he definitely does that there for those of you who may not have heard the song or are that familiar with the lyrics it's told in the first person of a young boy who's standing on a ledge about to commit suicide and we're not given the circumstances leading to him being up there and I think we shouldn't be I think it's great that it's just here is his story from this point the tragedy I think is that he's probably feeling more in control of his life than as he's comfortable with the knowledge as what he's going to do, that he's going to throw himself off the building. Paul Westerberg doesn't appear to write the plight of his character as a cry for help. It's just, I know what I'm going to do. You know, he sings, I'm the boy they can't ignore for the first time in my life, I'm sure. All the love sent up high to pledge won't reach the ledge. Heather, had you seen the film, or Randy, for that matter, had you seen Ace in the Hole, the Billy Wilder film? No, no. And I need to. I need to. I'm not not familiar. Okay, so that's a film with Kirk Douglas, directed by Billy Wilder. And in it, Kirk Douglas plays as this reporter. He's ended up in some small town. I can't remember, maybe it originally been at the, I can't remember if it was a New York or Chicago newspaper. And we don't know exactly why he's ended up in this small town newspaper. And he's doing these really dull assignments and he wants something big so he can build himself up again. And on the way back from an assignment, he goes past a quarry and discovers that there's a man who's been caught down a mine shaft and can't get out. And this man says, can you get me out? So Kirk Douglas taking this moment to think, I can build my career up by letting this story go on. So rather than immediately getting help for him, he builds up this story that, oh, it's impossible to get him out. He keeps telling him, oh, yeah, we're, we're, I'm on it, I'm on it. And it takes like days before he decides, you know, until the story in the newspapers had run its course, before he's going to try and do anything about this. So it's a very cynical take on the media circus. And you actually see people selling goods and trinkets and people setting up business around around the mine. And so there's this line in this film that reminded me completely of that film. I have no idea whether Paul Westerberg had seen the film or not, but just this one line, I smell coffee, I smell donuts for the press. 
Phony, below the belt journalism, that's what it is. Not below the belt, right in the gut, Mr. Boot. And it just sort of reminded me very much of that whole vibe in this film, Ace in the Hole. You know, to these guys, it's you imagine he's trying to convey the notion that it's less about the tragedy of what led this young man to want to throw himself off from a building and they're just all sitting around, they're having their coffee, eating the donuts, waiting for something to happen so that they can go and write their news story and meet that deadline and it'll be tonight's news and tomorrow they'll move on to the next thing. And that's as much the tragedy as this young boy, whatever it was that drove him to do this. And Oh, that's awesome. God, that makes me want to see Ace in the yeah. Hole even more. Well, you, you really should. Like, I mean, anything Billy Wilder, you can't go wrong. I mean, everyone sort of like talks about some like it hot and deservedly so. You know, what a fantastic film. But Billy Wilder, look, just ask our Captain Mike White. He'll convince you that <laughs> the, the whole Billy Wilder oeuvre is well worth watching. A really, really diverse director. I've digressed quite heavily. I can die We've gone and spoken a lot about Paul Westerberg as punky and snotty and aggressive, but we've also sort of gone and mentioned that you know he felt the need to change and he went and wrote these songs that were sometimes tear in the beer. So I just wanted to sort of talk for a couple of minutes about the notion of the Mats doing love songs, but it's always love songs their way. The love song on Please to Meet Me is Valentine. What was leading to that? If you go back to Let It Be, we have the song Answering Machine. sounds like a man possessed and when he sings how do you say goodnight to an answering machine he's a desperately frustrated young guy that desperation that really sort of conveys through in this song and in, and in its honesty and on Tim we have kiss me on the bus still a very poppy song it's none of the punk attitude that came before but it is in some ways it is very punk because it's uh, you know still young and fresh and hey let's fool around on the bus I don't give a damn who's watching us it's a lust song it's a great lust song and I think the world needs more of them but by the time they get to Valentine Knock you back with 
he's expressing love in still a more he won't do the last thing in public like he did with that previous song but you know, on Valentine he, you know, he sings if you were a pill I'd take a handful at my will and that's more poetic I don't think he would have ever gotten as poetic as he did on those early songs and yet it's still something that's very honest and very loving first of all you just mentioned a whole bunch of my favorite Matt's album like songs of all time because <laughs> like oh my god Answering Machine is so great I love Kiss Me on the Bus which I dare anybody to listen to that and not at least want to dance a little bit it's just so infectious <laughs> and catchy and I love Valentine it's still kind of like playing with addiction and things of addiction and love but it's still really kind of sweet and sort of mm. a fun dysfunctional way which again I love because that's honest you know anybody could somebody just writes a simple love song that where everything's healthy and perfect and that's great if you can get it but real life has a lot of shades of gray and you know everybody we're all kind of in this experience together and that's the thing there's always like such a realness to this band and a realness to Paul's lyrics. I don't know if Left on the Dial or Left of the Dial counts. It's not like a pure love song, but to me, it's it's there's a sense of just sad longing. Yes. I think it's almost more of a love for a friend, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think Paul wrote that about he had become good friends with one of the women in the Athens, Georgia band Let's Active. Actually, I think they were from North Carolina. But Let's Active were a great band, very underrated. But Paul had become really good friends with one of the band members in that and had wrote that about her. Okay. You know, but love, you know, friend love is good too. And just, uh, I mean, Left of the Dials, amazing. You know, just Westerberg, just is so, like, the master of just sweet kind of longing. It's almost like Bukowski. At least for yeah. me, I love I love Bukowski, so I'm maybe just invoking all of my heroes tonight. <laughs> In Valentine, I mean, the, he does talk about like being strung out and you know trouble keeping your head up and you know you're hungry and fed up and it's like the, I could see how you would get dysfunctional from that because the, the more I think about it, it, it does sound pretty dysfunctional. I think one of the things I love about Valentine, just from like a pure songwriting perspective, is I love songs where they like repeat a certain lyric but then they change what follows that lyric up and then you kind of hear the variation and the songs go so you know paul westerberg repeat the if you were a pill i'd take a handful at my will and i'd knock you back with something sweet and strong but then he changes the next two lines every time it comes up and i guess if that's the hook because that's not really the hook but it's like the free hook or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. every time that comes up it's like wow now i think something totally different because first you're talking about February makeup and the moon and the stars and then now you're hungry and you're fed up and then now like the world tonight and belongs to you and all it's just a ma an amazing way to to write a song it's, it's to me that something like that is captivating so i think it's it's definitely one of paul westerberg's best love songs because i think the ones on the later records got a little some of them get a little too cheesy for me so i think this is kind of that perfect mix of playfulness and tragedy i guess well this is sort of a wistful song in a way i think it sort of sounds to me like it's a song from the perspective of someone who can't bring himself to make contact and yet i don't see it as something creepy like any of the songs that you know sting wrote every every <laughs> breath you take or every little thing she does is magic and heather before you comment i love those songs all right no dissing on i'm not saying anything uh, you said everything those songs were sung from the perspective of someone who's creepy and observing from afar and like a stalker this is not a stalker song this is just someone who doesn't have the nerve to bring up what he feels about someone to that person but he can be completely honest in his own room and think what he thinks but he's never going to stalk it this really is a song of wistfulness to me so it's hard to sometimes remember that there's someone in back who's been waiting for a year to hear you play Skyway or something he's too scared to come up and talk 
I know. And those really are the ones people. that you want to run out and hug and say, like, you know, <laughs> we did it for you. Last song I wanted to bring up about what represents the beauty on this album. We've you know, had uh, aggressive rock and we've had wistful pop. But for me, the song that just raises the hair on my arms is Skyway. You take the Skyway High above the busy little one way In my stupid hat and gloves at night I lie awake Wondering if I'll sleep Wondering if we'll meet out in the street Sort of reading up in the biography, or maybe it was somewhere else, I can't remember, the notion that Skyway was in some ways his expression of, I don't know if you want to call it guilt or, or farewell feelings to Bob Stinson. And you're up on the Skyway, I'm down here, I'm wondering, are we ever going to meet up in the street? And you know, I think by the end of the song, you know, I went up to the Skyway, but you were down there. Not a damn thing I could do or say. There's a level of regret there, there's a level of sadness there, and it's... I just keep using this word honesty. It wasn't an easy thing for a band that had a problem with drinking and a problem with making the gig that they'd sack someone like Bob Stinson, who perfectly lived that ethos. I know that there are some people who've gone and said, well, it was a love song of sorts, but I like the interpretation that says that this is more in dedication to Bob Stinson. I absolutely love Skyway. I like that they use something that's like very Minneapolis. It's very much like where else do, I don't even know where else they have skyways like that like the, the connected walkways i'm sure there are other cities that have those but i hadn't heard your interp- that interpretation about it being about bob stinson but that would certainly make sense because you know that's that's where they were from and that's where they grew up so in a way it's hearkening back to living in minneapolis and and roaming about town and you know running into people that you don't otherwise see so yeah that, i think it's definitely a special song and it really i've joked with people like heather who don't appreciate can't hardly wait as much as others and, hey. and some people have said that maybe that could have just closed the album can't hardly wait could have been on don't tell a soul or something you know but it potentially could work as a closer if it just ended with skyway it'd still be one of the best records that i've heard well okay for the record i thought i love can't hardly wait not like a, a, a sax part does not make me hate the song, <laughs> sir. Skyway is beautiful. It's just a great song. I saw somebody comment online that they comparing it to Big Star, which I thought was actually kind of brilliant. Right. It's because Big Star, like you listen to something like I mean September Girls feels like an obvious one to bring up, but it's so good. Big Star is a band were so great about bringing up something that was very something very sweet sounding, but there's always sort of a sense of loss. It's almost like you know like right when summer's going into fall, that wistfulness, sort of a wistful melancholy maybe. I think Skyway has that. I always took it as unrequited love i never got the stinson thing but that's an interesting kind of interpretation i mean it's kind of the groovy thing about music there's or usually not a visual depending on the artist so you can just kind of play around with it in your head and create a whole world does that make sense yeah, yeah, I don't know, that may be a bit wobbly. <laughs> Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. Now, just, just sort of coming back to the song Alex Chilton, we all know that line, you know, I'm in love with that song. I think I read that the song that he's actually thinking about is Watch the Sunrise. Be gone, it won't be long. 
From number one record by Big Star, watch the sunrise to my mind sort of uh, reflect a lot in the feel of a song like Skyway. And I, I would imagine that he's saying, right, I'm in love with Big Star's music. I really, really love this song. And I can use that approach to writing a song. They don't all have to be snotty and punky and bad boy and or even just well-polished and loud and aggressive rock and roll. I can write something that's just nice and acoustic and I'm still being true to myself. So in a way, I'm wondering if, you know, Watch the Sunrise was a direct inspiration for something like Skyway or later on Sadly Beautiful or anything that he's done on his solo albums that's a little bit more reflective. We, we write about what we want to write about and we act where we are and we don't pretend. And it's like people won't accept that because they're used to a, a packaged kind of thing where you have to put on to be accepted. You know, you have to look good on TV, you have to act like you're into it. And sometimes we're not into it and we don't pretend that we are, you know. Randy, if you had someone come to you and say, look, I keep hearing about this band, The Replacements, what is the first album I should listen to? Would you recommend that it be this one? Or, for that matter, is it dependent on the sort of music that they already like? Would you just sort of think, well, you know, they, they like punk, so I'm going to recommend them Stinkle. In general, what do you think would be the first album you'd recommend? Would it be this? Yeah, I, I think it definitely depends on who they are and what they dig. But I think, like, in a general sense, Please to Meet Me is the, the one that I would recommend to people to, to start with. If you've never heard The Replacements at all, I feel like it's a good place where that's their masterpiece so to me please to meet me is the record where everything came together for the replacement and I, I think it's an easy place to start with because the songs are a little easier to to get into than some of the earlier stuff and, and the songwriting to me is so strong on the record and it's still even though it has that 80s production it's still really listenable today so that would be for sure the one i would recommend but you know if they were like an old school punk or something then i might i might tell them to start with let it be my personal i, I don't want to say it's my favorite but please to meet me just has that special place in my heart because for me it was the first one so i feel like if it can spawn a lifelong love of the replacements for me then it could do the same for anybody mm -hmm. i would recommend it but i would not recommend it as an introductory because as much as i love please to meet when i got it i think having hoot nanny with it is what really kick-started me mm -hmm. that combination maybe which is something i didn't even think about until just now talking with you guys yeah i like that combo they get two replacements <laughs> yeah yeah good and idea that's something I rarely do unless it's a band I'm already, you know, like 100% solid I'm going to love. But I would say introductory. I would honestly say Tim just because, God, I love Tim. It's so perfect. But I think Tim has just a perfect mix of everything that makes Please to Meet Me great and everything that makes all the previous albums great. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got you've got songs like Here Comes a Regular, which is a favorite of mine, and Left at the Dial, and Bastards Young. So you have things that actually according now granted this according to wiki uh, wikipedia so your mileage is i was gonna vary <laughs> i mean come on you know it's it happens um, uh, can't hardly wait apparently was originally recorded to be on tim with the guitar parts uh, instead of the sax parts what? which i would have been down with well, well just just to let you know on the album that i mentioned at the start of the show that was my introduction to them all for nothing and nothing for all so the first album was a best of or the best of the sire years and nothing for all was all rarity unreleased cuts and it opens up with the Tim version of Can't Hardly Wait.
knowing what you feel about uh, the Please Meet Me version, you will love the Tim version of it. It is, yeah. it is definitely a, a lot more lo-fi, no sax solo, definitely yes. more in your line. I, I was, I was gonna say too when they, uh, they recently, I think it was like 2008, they remastered all the replacement Sire records, and the the Please to Meet Me remastered, like expanded edition, has that Can't Hardly Wait Tim version as a bonus cut. So if you want to hear both, both and compare them, that's something that I've done many times to listen to both of them back to back. The Tim version is probably much more up your alley than other. Heck yes. But I think Tim would be a good introductory album because just for everything I said, uh, I do love that we live in an era where things are getting re-released. I actually, for Christmas, I think two years ago, I got the Rhino vinyl uh, release of Stink from my husband. And, uh, and I love it. It makes me so happy to have that. Oh, good. <laughs> Chuck's a good man. So, yeah, he's a very good man. He's a great man. I don't know why he puts up with me, but he's very kind. <laughs> well, Boris, what would be the album you would use to introduce somebody to the replacements? See, I'm probably going to take the easy road out on this. I think, well, my introduction, Shit, Shower, and Shave, was such a good way for me to find out about this band, and it sort of blew my mind away. It was like more of the latter-day Sire songs. It was, you know, none of the early stink. Sorry, Ma, I forgot to take out the trash. It still has the end energy as well as some of the latter day songs so it's, it's got that combination of melodicism for those people who want it with a bit of punk attitude I'd sort of recommend going down that road but if I was talking with someone who said well I find bootlegs highly unethical and immoral and I don't know why they do that <laughs> yeah look I probably would say let it be because that has that great combination of you know them just starting to sort of find their way to maybe a more poppy sound while still having the desperation of the early sound. So yeah, Let It Be will probably be my pick. And for the record, I think probably I Will Dare is definitely high up there in one of my most favourite oh. replacement songs. And such a great album opener. How young are you? They have a lot of great album openers. I was actually thinking my, my favorite replacement album opener is actually Hold My Life. I think that's one of the best ways to start a record. So it's interesting that, but it's interesting that we all pick different records. I think that's telling of how great the replacements catalog is. None of those albums are ones that we dismiss. We think, oh yeah, no, that's a good choice. I understand that pick. We love them all, but, but it's good that there is a diversity and the band meant different things to different people, I guess. And that's probably what's going to hold them in good stead with future generations of music fans, if music is allowed to be listened to in future generations, of course. I don't know. I think it just shows that with the replacements, there's no wrong album to probably introduce somebody to. Right. Which is the beauty of this band. Uh, also, I Will Dare is amazing. I love that song so much. Just any song that has the line, bacon and cigarettes are a lousy dinner. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know if you'll ever listen to this, but Paul Westerberg, you are very loved and admired, sir. <laughs> oh, I have it on good authority that he's a big fan of the podcast in general and he's been waiting for this episode. So you finally got it, Paul, all right? Stop hassling me. Oh, my God. Yeah. You got my hopes up. My blood pressure just went up for a second, Boris. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm just a little oh. bit of fantasizing there, Heather. All right. So that concludes our discussion on the replacements. Uh, I hope that we've done them proud. I hope that you listeners out there, especially any of you Matt's fans, don't think that we've gone and completely wrecked it and haven't gotten the point. I like to think that we did get the point, but any feedback? Well, I'll tell you after the break how you can write to us, As uh, in case you don't remember how Joanne said it at the start of the show. What we're going to do now is go to Eric's Album My Love segment. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, he'll be talking about Zuzu Petal's 1992 
2022 album, When No One's Looking. And after that, Heather and Randy and myself will be back to close off the show. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 114. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two. I want two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. Greetings, this is Eric Reanimator back with another Album That I Love segment. This is more like an Album That Stuck With Me segment, as I have not actually listened to this for quite a while, and when I was listening to this, it's not something that I would say I loved. This is the band Zuzu's Pedals, and the album's called When No One's Looking, shoot on Twin Tone Records in 1992, uh, out of Minneapolis, so there's your replacements tie, or one of them, I won't go into the other one. Uh, I have always been a fan of punk rock that has been made by women. I enjoy the different points of view. I enjoy the humor. I enjoy hearing somebody that's coming from a different background than myself or having a different life experience. 1992, I would have been 20 years old. I'm thinking that these ladies were probably in their 20s at the time that this was recorded. So there's also the generational understanding there as well. But more so than all the historical and personal connections, there's always the music. So let's sample some more of what they had to offer. Thank you. 
so there you get an example of both the more quiet, slow, tempoed, uh, reflective music, and also the kind of more in-your-face, upbeat. Uh, by upbeat, I mean up-tempo. There's definitely that in-your-face punk attitude. You also get that Minneapolis kind of mixture of noise and chaos with tuneful harmony, uh, this kind of folk music sound that underlies all of it. I don't know, that's something that seems to be prevalent in a lot of Minneapolis-based punk bands or metal bands, especially in that late 80s, early 90s era. There's a certain kind of sneer that comes with this music that you didn't really hear coming from other scenes, at least I didn't hear coming from other scenes. It's like anything else, it's got its own regional flavor. So there was a follow-up album, which I know I had, I don't know if I still have it, Uh, my collection's kind of in a state of flux right now as I'm trying to reorganize everything. At any rate, uh, Zuzu's pedals lasted till the mid-90s. They appear to have called it quits, and at some point, lead singer Lori Linden actually married Paul Westerberg. She wrote a couple of books about her experience as a musician, uh, neither of which I've read, both of which I've wanted to. At any rate, I think Zuzu's pedals is an interesting document of the era I think it's an interesting moment in time. This came out in 92, which means it's probably being recorded in 91. These songs are probably being written in 1991. This is right on the cusp of the alternative wave breaking. Everyone talks about 1991 as being the year of Nirvana. It was actually October of 91. So all of this stuff was going on at the same time. And the replacements and Zuzu's pedals and bands from Athens, Georgia... Seattle, Portland, Oregon, and even Ann Arbor, Michigan, were all forging ahead with this new sound that we would call alternative. Some of these bands hit, some of them didn't. Some of them had a opportunity to shine, some of them didn't. Who knows what happened with Zuzu's Pedals? I'm sure they know. I'm sure they have their stories. For now, what we have, or what I have to offer, is the music. So I'm going to go ahead and finish this up. A quick announcement. I'm going to be taking the next two months off. I need to rest and recharge and hopefully update some technology things. I plan to be back in October of 2018. So until we meet again, here's a little more Zuzu's Pedals, and I'll catch you on the other side.
Movies and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. And we're back. Thanks very much, Eric, for a great segment. Look forward to you coming back in October. Have a wonderful two months off. I know you've probably got a bunch of things that you have to take care of, so don't worry. The Good Ship Love That Album compilation edition and album I love segments will be in good hands. I'll get to that in a couple of minutes. First of all, I want to say a huge thank you. Not a little one, not even a medium one. I want to give a huge thank you to my two guest hosts for this program. First of all, Heather Drain, how can people get to read your wonderful writings? Actually, even before that, tell me, is there any progression with the Bizarro Film Encyclopedia? When is that coming out? When can I order it? Well, uh, hopefully later this year. The book itself has been done for ages as far as writing. We've been tinkering with the format as far as getting pictures and illustrations. We want the book to look as beautiful and bizarre and amazing as the f- very films and artists we're writing about. And we actually just had some great kismet happen. I'm not going to spoil it, but the book is going to look amazing. And of course, for everybody listening, it's a, a book I'm working on with my, uh, my writing partner, John Skip, who, in addition to being one of the people that helped found the splatterpunk literary genre in the 80s, John also is one of the big founders of the Pizarro literary genre. And he wanted to go into the whole nonfiction side of it and me being a film and music and cultural writer. So uh, got that started. And uh, we also have a great illustrator, Paula Handbeck, who's done a gorgeous cover art. And Paula's helping us get everything to look beautiful. So hopefully later this year, anybody, if you follow me, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Come and find me. I also have a website, mondoheather.com, and uh, I'm constantly doing freelance work. I write for Diabolique, among other places. So um, please come if you like weird movies and great music and just all that kind of culture that needs more love and attention. Yeah. Come my way. And and let's not forget your regular appearances on Captain Mike's The Projection Booth. Absolutely, yeah. If um, anybody listens, to this, you must dig up the Charlie Varick episode. That is how Morris and I got to meet. Oh, it was so. love at first talk. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully everybody's like, yay, instead of being like, oh, so Mike White's who we're going to send angry emails to. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that, that, why do you think I'm subverting this? Uh, so just uh, one question I wanted to ask about the film encyclopedia. So is the format going to be you list a whole bunch of films and then talk about them? Or is it going to be more like a history of what you consider bizarro film? Well, actually, um, the cool thing, because we really, we wanted this book to be, and it's the first of a series, it's volume one, is to be kind of, I would say, like a great buffet, like a great, <laughs> just like four, four course meal of all things weird and wonderful with cinema. And so, you know, we have an introduction that kind of runs down. Anybody who's wanting to know bizarro, I mean, it, it basically, bizarro can be the Marx Brothers, it can be David Lynch, it could be a lot of things. Wow. And we, we try to encapsulate that. There's specific films we focus on and get into. We also have 
at the end of the book what we're calling our dream sort of video store, which uh, you know, which I know there are people who are probably young enough now at this point to maybe didn't grow up with the old video stores of 80s and 90s kids. It was amazing. <laughs> it was such a cool era. But it's a better era now because we have more access to everything. But so just imagine, you know, the greatest video store with every weird and amazing film. So we have like an index. And of course that, everything will be expanded upon as the series goes on because it would be if we did one book covering all the great films and filmmakers who have done something off the beaten path, that book would be like 5,000 pages long. It would be an an, an insane uh, thing to try and undertake. So we're doing this and we're trying to convert the unconverted, Mm -hmm. but also um, entertain and connect with the people who are already kind of part of the tribe. Looking immensely forward to getting a copy of that. So got to wait through to the end of the year. Good gosh almighty. Hopefully before then, but we got we got to get it formatted sure. so we don't we don't want to have anything out that we don't feel like 100% we want to make sure and give all all of our readers a true and proper experience Excellent. and so Randy people want to uh contact you how can they do so you're on the facebooks and the twitters and all that sort of thing i am on the facebooks the twitters the gram i'm on it all you can follow me and my company at, at cigar city mgmt cigar like smoking a cigar mm-hmm. city like a city and mgmt like the band mgmt so at cigar city mgmt just follow us there i work with a bunch of really awesome bands and i hope you check them out i hope you listen to them if you're on spotify we have a playlist called this is Cigar City Management, and it has everybody that we work with and bands who stuff we put out and basically a, a hodgepodge of everything that I do. So follow that, follow us, listen to all the music that I recommend and share, and listen to our podcast, Cigar City Radio. Excellent. Just meant to ask you, how did your tour with was it Fruit and Flowers go of England? Oh, it was fantastic. We had a blast in England. My first time, like, really going to the UK, and we stayed just in the UK, so it was interesting. Like, we didn't hit any other countries uh, in Europe and the, or the EU. It was just England-focused and had a blast just uh, meeting meeting a lot of great people, seeing some incredible bands. There's some great music scenes, and obviously London's amazing. Brighton has a fantastic music scene, and we just really enjoyed the tour. Mm-hmm. I was glad I got to be part of it. We're, we have a lot of bands that are going to be coming through the UK in the next couple years, so Fruit and Flowers is the first one that we brought over there, and uh, I had to just go and see what it was like and, and be a part of it, but uh, our next band, if you're listening to this in the UK, um, we have a band called Shark Muffin that's going to be out there July... 27 through like the middle of August or so so head to sharkmuffin.com and listen to their music and, and check out the tour dates and if they're near you in uh, the United Kingdom then go and check them out and tell them that the Love That Album podcast is what sent you there oh and they, they'll let you in for nothing oh, of, course. of course <laughs> because you know we're big in I was going to say in the UK we're big in my lounge room but anyway so there you go listeners out there you've got all the good oil plenty of good reading coming your way plenty of good listening coming your way um, uh, I wholeheartedly recommend that you subscribe to Cigar City Radio as a podcast. Some great interview stuff going on there. You'll get some artists that you know, some artists that you don't know. And Randy's doing fantastic work there, supporting his local community and supporting bands that need to take on the world that haven't quite done it yet. But with his help, by God, they'll do it. <laughs> I certainly hope so. So time for me to talk about what's happening over the next couple of months with the program. For episode 115 of Love That Album, I'll be welcoming back to the 
show, Ian McFarlane, rock journalist and author of the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop. He's already been on the program a couple of times. It's been way too long since I've had him back. So we'll be talking about a couple of things. First of all, we'll be talking about his work with the Aztec Records label. For those of you who are not in the know, Aztec Records is a reissues label here in Australia and they search out Australian albums that have probably been out of the public eye for quite a long time and they remaster them and put on stacks and stacks of bonus tracks in McFarlane helps with the choice and the mastering of these albums and also writes incredibly detailed liner notes in the booklets that go with the CDs so he is a master of Australian music knowledge and it's always wonderful to have him on the show so he'll be talking about some of the recent releases and some of the upcoming releases from Aztec Records over the next few months and as well as that we'll be focusing on a very specific album that came from Aztec Records last year it was the re-release of the album by a band that started out as a surf band and then sort of evolved into a psychedelic band hence the name of the album is called Evolution the name of the band is Tamam Shud we spoke a little bit about this on the end of year love that album that were one of my favorite albums of last year in terms of re-releases things that i discovered so we'll be talking about the album in a lot more detail and about the history how they evolved from the sunsets into tamam shud so i really look forward to having ian on the program he always makes things really interesting the album i love segment for the next couple of months is being taken over by my great friend dave blom who's filled in for episodes when i decided to go walk about from time to time so Dave will come up with some treats. I'm not sure what yet, but I love his style. I love his knowledge. He's a great music specialist and loves his Australian music. So I'm guessing more than likely it'll be something local. We'll wait and see. For the next couple of months, the compilation edition episodes of Love That Album. I've got two different guest hosts for the compilation edition to take over uh, Eric's shift. So August's one will be taken over by host of Paleo Cinema and Martian Drive-In podcast, Mr. Terry Frost. thought, he's a big music guy. I was sort of expecting he was maybe going to do something in a jazz vein, but he suggested that he's going to talk for the compilation edition about a couple of soundtracks. He's going to talk about the soundtrack for Barbarella and the soundtrack for Shaft. So if you're a fan of paleo cinema, and you should be, then you just know that Terry's going to bring the thunder for that. That's going to be really, really exciting. Look forward to his thoughts on those two albums. And in September, fellow who I mentioned earlier on in this show, Tom Quee, ex-host of Dan and the whole current host of Beatallica is going to be doing an episode. He hasn't informed me yet what he's going to be doing, but that's okay. That's not till September, so we'll talk about that in August. So uh, Terry Frost, Tom Quee, Dave Blom. It takes three great men to replace one great man's shoes. So Eric, have a good break, but your segments and shows are well taken care of until you return in October. Look forward to that. Okay, thanks very much, guys, for uh, being part of the show. It's, uh, It's really a treat and look forward to having you on again really soon thank you so much for having us absolutely and all the best be nice to each other so until next month all the best cheers Oh,
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 